0: Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. The Great Commission. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, Alright, morning everybody. Uh, my name is Steve, I'm the associate pastor here. Good to see you all. Alright, let's pray and then we're going to dive right in because we've got a lot to cover this morning. Father, thank you for uh, this community, that we get to be a part of it. That we get to be a part of what you are doing here in Oakland and around the East Bay and even around the world. We are not the only church that gathers this morning. There are millions of people Today, gathering to worship and to praise your name, to lift up Jesus, to respond to your word, to respond to your spirit as it moves in our hearts, leading us into your purposes and leading us into your mission for putting your family back together. So God, as we enter into this time, as we enter into a season in the life of our church, uh, may you use uh, these things that we are trying, these are just our feeble attempts um, to, uh, to do something that reflects who you are. May you use this, all of it, uh, to build your church and to build your kingdom. We want to make Jesus' name great, not, not Regen's name great, God. And so may, may you do that, use us in some small way to be a part of that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week, uh, we finished up our study in the Gospel of Mark. We were in the Gospel of Mark for about a year and a half, and this series that we're starting today about discipleship is, a, I think, a very natural outflowing from spending time in the life of Jesus. But I actually want to begin today where we ended last Sunday. So if you have your Bible still open, flip back over to Mark chapter 16, and I want to just look again at how Mark ends the, the Jesus story. It's a pretty remarkable ending. And it begins like this Verse 1 of chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they may go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on, the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Now, the women here are doing a very good thing, a very customary thing. They're tending to Jesus' dead body. and they set out for the tomb, and they asked this question, this great question, how will we get in? Who's going to roll away this giant stone? And there's a whole sermon just right there in that one question. Because there are times in our life where God calls us to do something, or we feel compelled to do something for God, and we don't know how it's going to turn out. We have no guarantee that this thing is actually going to work. I love the way that they approach this. Continuing on, when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said, which is funny, right? (laughs) They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed. This, This always works with my wife. You know, and she's like, oh, you know, we're driving somewhere and maybe I, I don't totally know where we're going. And, and I'm like, she's like, I'm kind of alarmed at what we're doing. Oh, don't be alarmed, right? That always works, <laughs> even for this angel. <laughs> don't be alarmed, he says. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified, but he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told. Here they get this this amazing huge news. Jesus is risen. He was dead but now he is alive and it's in this moment. Think about this for just a second. It's in this moment that these three women are the only people on the face of the earth who know the good news of Jesus' resurrection. What an amazing thing to be the first, to have this privilege of hearing for the first time, Jesus is not dead. He is alive. He is not here. He is risen. So the angel then tells them, go tell Peter and the others what has happened. Go to Galilee. You will see Jesus. And so trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now today we're going to turn our attention in just a second to Matthew 28, the way that Matthew ends the Jesus story. And he tells it quite differently. The ending is quite different, right? There's much more detail given, but I love the way that Mark ends. And I wanted us to begin here because Mark wants us to sit with just how crazy this moment was. We like the resolve and, and, and our stories to end with kind of a neat bow tied on them. But Mark wants us to pause and to linger here with the insanity of this moment. Jesus is alive. For these women and for all of Jesus' first followers, this is a disruptive moment. Their whole world is turned upside down. A disruptive moment. We don't like disruptions, right? We don't want to be interrupted, whatever you want to call it, interruption, disruption. Those are generally perceived to be negative things. I mean, just look at the definition of disruption, a disturbance or problem, problems that interrupt an event, activity, or process. Disturbance, problem, interruption. Those are all bad things, right? All negative words. We don't like to be disrupted. Right after Christmas, uh, our family was able to take a two-week vacation. It's the first full two weeks of vacation that we've had in 10 years of marriage. It was a great time uh, to just be away and to rest and to not have the normal sort of daily grind and schedule that we do uh, with kids being in two different schools and jobs and all that kind of stuff. So it was a great two weeks, but every vacation, of course, has its moments. And our moment came the second week. We actually got to spend that week out at at Mount Hermon in a cabin in the Redwoods, beautiful place, um, really awesome time. And the first day was was wonderful. We got there, and we're in this cabin, and our kids are like, what is this building? And there's a bunk bed, and they're just going crazy. Their imaginations are going wild. They love this. We got to go outside, go on a hike. What a great first day. Uh, The second day, things continued to go fairly well until the evening when we put our kids down to sleep. And for whatever reason, that night, our daughter, Marina, just could not fall asleep. Now normally our kids are really good sleepers. They're they're in bed and, and usually completely quiet by 7 30 and they're in there all night. But this night it took her until maybe 10, 11 o'clock to finally settle down and fall asleep. And in the process of, of getting her settled down and falling asleep, we end up like reshuffling the deck. I end up in the bunk bed with Cruz, our son. And Maureen and Amy are out in the living room, because that was the only place that we could get her to calm down. And so finally, it's, it's about midnight, we've gotten everybody asleep, there's this, there's this peace that has uh, finally settled on our cabin, and this is the night of that 4.5 earthquake that hit in Berkeley. Do you remember that, back in early January? So of course, the, the earthquake hits, We're, Amy and I are freaking out, like, oh my gosh, did fall out of the crews fall out of the bunk bed, like all this kind of stuff. Our kids totally sleep through the whole thing. After all of that mess, they sleep through the earthquake, of course. But we are, are losing our minds as parents. All this to say, that one little blip on our vacation radar, total disruption. And luckily we had three or four more days to recover from that. But in that moment, it's not fun. We don't like to be disrupted to be interrupted and yet God continually throughout scripture throughout our lives our own experiences God uses these disruptive moments to move us to move us into a new way of thinking a new way of understanding a new way of loving to move us into new callings into mission and deeper into relationship with him. He uses disruptive moments to move our story and his story forward. And this truth plays itself out for sure in the way that Mark ends the Jesus story, but also in the way that Matthew ends the Jesus story. So let's take a look at that one more time. Matthew 28, just a couple of verses here, verses 16 through 20. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Here they are doing what Jesus or what the angel commanded the women there at the end of Mark. teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew ends in this much cleaner way with this command, this charge to take all that Jesus has invested into them, to share it with as many people as possible. It's this uh, beautiful, inspiring, even poetic ending, right? But in its own way, this ending is just as disruptive as the moment we see at the end of Mark. Think about this for a moment. Over the last 40 days or so, this group of people has gone from thinking that Jesus was going to inaugurate a real, actual political kingdom in Jerusalem to then watching him die on a cross to then experiencing the resurrection. And now, all of a sudden, being told, you are going to go. You're going to take this news to the nations. You know, no big deal. Just take it to the nations. I mean, think about that. That is a lot to process over a short amount of time. This is a disruptive moment. Now what I want to do here with the rest of our time today is make some observations about this disruptive moment. I want to make some observations about God's part in this and then our part in this. And then I think there's a word of encouragement and a word of challenge here for us. So let's begin with God's part. Let's start with the word telos. This is our fancy word of the day. Telos means an ultimate object or aim. And so our question here is, what is God's ultimate object or aim, what is God's telos? To understand this, to, to see how Matthew 28 fits into the bigger story, we have to go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis 1 and 2. And I'm going to condense a whole lot here, so just hang with me. In the creation account, we see that God's aim was to create a home and a family. God's aim was to create a home and a family. God exists as this mysterious, perfect union of three persons in one being, what theologians call the Trinity. We see a reference to this in Matthew 28, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that we see about this Trinity from the very beginning is that God could have said, you know what, this is cool. This Perfect community of three and oneness is great. We don't need anybody else. We don't need to be bothered by anything. But God is not a closed community. And he creates because his love cannot be contained. It must give. It must send. It must extend beyond itself. 1 John chapter 4, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given, here's that generosity, that love extending itself. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us because God is Love. God has always had a mission, an ultimate aim and purpose to create a home and a family to share His love with. Now, within the creation account, we see that human beings are given a part to play in this. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female, He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's always been this impulse to create, to extend, to send, to give, to multiply because this is who God is. It is his telos, to extend himself and his love. So he creates a home and a family. Now this family rebels against him and brings a curse on both the home and the family and the family is broken, torn apart and the creation groans. Romans chapter 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. We groan inwardly as we await what? Adoption. Adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. So the focus, the mission I think is the same, but the focus of the mission is a little bit different now because of the rebellion, because of sin. God is now on a mission to put his family back together. This begins in earnest when God disrupts the life of a man named Abram. Genesis chapter 12 So God will use this family dwelling in this land to bless all the families of the earth, to call all nations to himself. And this is a theme that's repeated throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 49. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord, Zechariah 8. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Micah 4. Do you see why Jesus' words to the disciples in Matthew 28 are so disruptive? They grew up immersed in this worldview, in this religious system that said, There's going to be a kingdom here in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And it will be a glorious nation. It will act as a beacon. It will draw people to it. Everyone's going to want to come here. But Jesus turns that whole thing upside down and says, no, they're not going to come to us. We are going to go to them. How am I going to put my family back together? Step one, through my death and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins. That you may have right relationship with God. But step two, is by you telling people about this good news. So now we come to our part. And this is not meant to be formulaic here, but there, I think, are four aspects to our role in this. And the first is that we go. Like Abram, like the disciples, we are called to go. Now sometimes this gets interpreted as I have to go far away. Right, I have to go somewhere to some distant land. Before the original 11, this group of people that Jesus is sending out, they had no concept of planes and flying to the far ends of the earth. In fact, Jesus gives them a very simple directive in Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, start where you are, with what you know, and then go from there. Now this idea of going, of being sent, is the essence of discipleship. A disciple is an outwardly focused, others-oriented person who is learning to live and love like Jesus. Jesus. Let me say that again, a disciple is an outwardly focused, others-oriented person who is learning to live and love like Jesus. When we live this way, we begin to reflect God's character. God sends Jesus, Jesus sends the Spirit, we are sent. Our sentness reflects God's heart, his love for his family, his desire to see his family put back together. And again, sent does not mean that you have to go to, uh, somebody between services said Madagascar. <laughs> okay, Whatever that like, far off land for you is, it does not mean you have to go there. It simply means that we live where we are right now as a sent person a sent person on a mission. We are sent to our families, our roommates, our coworkers, our neighbors, whatever the circles are that you are a part of. You have been sent there to bear witness to the good news that you have experienced. You have been sent there to bear witness to the power of the resurrected Jesus in your life. So you don't need to go far to go. You just need to go. As we go we make disciples. Now this is an intimidating phrase. A lot of people I think get freaked out by what is is it make a disciple? Like some kind of Frankenstein creature or whatever in a lab, right? It's weird. Now a better translation of this passage would be to say going, discipling, and then the two words that come a little bit later, baptizing, teaching. So what does it mean to be discipling? We're going to unpack this a little bit more over the next two Sundays, but for now, just a real simple idea. Discipling starts by investing in a person. One person. Maybe that person is someone at at work who you sense is open to a spiritual conversation. There's an uh, an opportunity there to simply say, this is what I've seen. These are some of the things that I've experienced. This is what I care about. This is how Jesus has changed my life. Maybe that one person is someone in your home group who you know is going through a difficult time and, and you can connect with that in some way and so you reach out to them and say, hey, I know about that. You want to talk about that? There's a million different ways it can look but in its most basic form, discipleship is this. Let me show you what I've seen. Let me tell you a little bit about what I've experienced what I've experienced so that we can both become more like Jesus. So going, discipling, and then baptizing and teaching. Baptizing signifies that there are times where your role in this mission will be to help people make a decision, help people cross a sort of line of this public statement that I'm in. I want to be a disciple of Jesus too. And teaching signifies that sometimes your role in this mission is to help people learn or understand something, put something into practice that reflects the heart of God. Now, I think the good news in all of this is that God does the heavy lifting. He does the creating and the resurrecting and the regenerating, if you will. And on top of that, Jesus promises here that he will be with us on this mission. But at the same time, we must do our part. We must go disciple, baptize, teach. And here's the thing, guys. This is not just a nice thing to do. This is not just some uh, good Christian activity to sprinkle on top of whatever you are already doing. You are altering the course of eternal destinies. You are changing history. Jesus says earlier in Matthew, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. As a pastor, I get asked from time to time about, like, the end of the world, and usually there's some crazy prophecy that's come out that it's going to end on Tuesday. And is that true? And how how do we know? I always try to bring people back to this, because there are a lot of things that are open to interpretation, and there's things that Jesus said about the future that are kind of fuzzy, but this he was very clear on. Go, disciple, baptize, teach, and then the end will come. This is how the story will end. So joining Jesus in his mission to put his family back together is nothing short of revolutionary. You're changing the course of history. Now, encouragement and then a challenge. Before this big send off comes what to me is one of the most remarkable verses in all of Scripture Matthew 28 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Think about that for a minute. This group of people who saw Jesus' miracles walking on water, water into wine, saw people healed, heard the teaching witnessed the crucifixion and the resurrection are standing there in front of the resurrected Jesus and they're like, nah, I don't know. That's crazy, right? Now hold on to that thought for just a moment. I think the church has done a disservice, and when I say church, I mean big picture church has done a disservice over the past 50 or so years and that we've made discipleship about two things uh, about one of two things and I think both of these things are quite frankly wrong the first is this we've made discipleship basically a self-improvement program but discipleship is not about becoming a better christian Just look at this this mission that Jesus gives to these guys. This is not about technique. This is not about going to classes or reading books or getting smarter. They are simply sent to go. Think of it this way. This is a new year, and in a new year, a lot of us make resolutions, right? And so one of the most popular resolutions is to get in shape. So we join a gym or we start a new workout program. And this is how a lot of us have been taught discipleship. Need to get in shape? Go to the gym. Need to get better at following Jesus? Sign up for this class, this program. Now those things are not bad things. Going to the gym, getting in shape, taking a theology class, all good things. But discipleship is not self-improvement. It's not going to the gym. To play that analogy out a little bit farther, discipleship is inviting someone to come with you to the gym to experience what you've experienced, and to share together what you've learned. Now, the second mistake we make, and this comes back to this, this verse about the doubters, the second mistake we make is that discipleship is oftentimes reserved for the serious and the committed. It's like graduate-level Christianity. But Again, to me, this verse clearly shows us that discipleship not reserved for elite super-Christians. Jesus says, hey doubters, you are the ones who are going to go and disciple and baptize and teach. And you've got this. I'm with you. So the encouragement here is that anybody can do this. You don't need to wait until you've got it all figured out. You don't need to wait until you've achieved some sort of all-star level Status. You don't need more time or another class. You just need to go. You need to be disrupted. And this leads us to the challenge, just a real simple question. Are you able to be disrupted? Now, for some of us here this morning, maybe this, is, this disruption is simply responding to the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Have you been disrupted by the gospel? Disrupted by the good news that God sent Jesus on a mission to adopt you into his family. Now maybe you've already experienced that disruption and you've sort of settled into a place of comfort or complacency and so is there space in your life for God to interrupt you again? Have you taken seriously the truth that if you are a disciple of Jesus, you are a sent person? You are here to be a blessing, to bear witness to what God has done. You are here to change the course of history. Now, one of the best ways to be disrupted, and by no means is this the only way, but I think one of the best ways to be disrupted is to join a home group where you will meet a lot of weird people who will interrupt your life. <laughs> but who you also will be able to, to work through this with and who you'll be able to talk about what does it look like to live as a sent person in whatever context you happen to be in. They're like little laboratories for this, this mission of going and discipling and teaching and baptizing. And as I said earlier, we're starting this new experiment with groups. This is as good a time as any to get involved. When you came in, you got a little card. If you're not connected to a group and you would like to be, just fill that card out. Give it to me or drop it in a box on your way out. And we would love to help you get plugged in over the the course of the next couple of weeks. So this may be the disruption that God has for you right now. But more broadly speaking, are you able to be disrupted? I want to close with a story. This is the story of how we ended up here in Oakland in a lot of ways, and this is not meant to uh, explain or or to show that I'm really good at this at all because I think this actually demonstrates the opposite of that. But um, as many of you know, Amy and I, after we got married, we spent the first almost seven years of our married life in uh, Boston from California originally, but we were out there for Amy to go to grad school, and I got involved in ministry, and, and we got involved in a church that we really liked. And ended up staying there for a while and thought we would be there for the foreseeable future. So the summer of 2013, we flew out to the West Coast to um, do some different things. I actually flew to Portland to go to a conference that was called the World Domination Summit. (laughs) That's what it's called. Um, Amy flew to Salinas to be with our family. We only had Marina at that point. Um, And then after that conference was over, I actually flew into Oakland And uh, Amy was going to pick me up here, and I was like, well, I'm going to Oakland. I should see if my good old friend um, Bruce Olson is around. Some of you know Bruce. Uh, He and his family have been involved in this church for many years. He's been an elder for almost six years. Um, So Bruce and I got lunch. I think we went to Faralito in, uh, in Fruitvale, and the plan was for me to get on BART and then go from there down to Fremont where Amy would pick me up. But Bruce offered to drive me to Fremont because he's one of the best people that I know at being disrupted. And so on that drive, he says, hey, have you guys thought at all about coming back to California? Because I'm a part of this church, and we're looking for an associate pastor. And I think you'd be a good fit. And I said, no. <laughs> Dude, I just went to the World Domination Summit. I got big plans. Like I... <laughs> I said, no thanks, but, um, you know, thanks for thinking to me. And then Fast forward to the winter, so end of 2013, beginning of 2014, Amy and I did begin to have this sense that God was calling us to come back to California, and so we spent that spring exploring a couple of options. Um, One of them was quite serious in Southern California, and so July of 2014, we came out to look at that, Um, we're really excited about it, and then my dad drove us from Salinas to the airport, again in Oakland, uh, to fly back to Boston, and on that drive... Amy and Marina fell asleep in the back, and my dad and I got into some really deep conversation, and we completely missed the exit to the airport. And we, like, really missed the exit to the airport because we're about to get on the Bay Bridge, and we're like, oh, man, I think we missed the exit. (laughs) (laughs) And we just caught it in time to get that last turnaround, you know, before you get stuck on the bridge and end up in the city. So we turn around, and we come back up, and as we come back up on the 880, there's, you know, you can see Jack London Square from there, and that's where Bruce was working at the time. And in that moment, I just had this very fleeting thought, it it could only have been God, that said, you should email Bruce, before you commit to anything else, just check in with Bruce and see if anything's going on at Regen. And so we made our flight on time, and we made it back to Boston, Um, and when we got back, I sent him an email. I said, hey, what's going on? And here we are. (laughs) The rest is history, right? But I think sometimes about that moment. I think, you know, what, what if he hadn't have missed that exit? And depending on how things are going on that particular day, that question has a different tone. But I tell that story to say this. Disruptions come in all sorts of forms. Sometimes it's a big moment. The stone is rolled away. It's time to move from Boston back to California. But then other times, it's these much smaller things. You miss an exit. You feel this nudge, this conviction. I should talk to that person. I should bring that conversation up with with that guy today. Sometimes it's simply taking seriously this command. Go, disciple, baptize, teach. What is the disruption that you are in right now? God is going to use that to shape you, to draw you further into his mission and his purposes in the world. He is going to use that to change the course of history. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your incredible love that compelled you to create. Thank you that you didn't uh, stay a closed community in, in the Trinity, but that you went beyond yourself to create this world, to create each and every one of us, to invite us to be a part of your family. And then, God, even after we rebelled against that, thank you that in your love you didn't walk away. But you continued to pursue us. You continued to give. You continued to send. And you sent your son, Jesus, to be the Savior of the world. God, if there are some people here this morning that need to simply just accept that good news today, I pray that you would give them the courage to do that. And then God, for those of us who maybe we've been following you for a while, we've become comfortable or we've become complacent, would you interrupt us again? Would you disrupt us with your love so that we may participate with you in this mission of putting your family back together? God, we very humbly just want to be a part of what you are doing here in this church, in this city, in the Bay Area. May we be a blessing as we share the good news of Jesus with as many people as possible. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.